Hello, and welcome to the Circe Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to The Mason Jar, and I'm David Kern. And as always here in The Mason Jar, I'm joined by Cindy Rollins. Cindy, how's it going? It's going very well. So it is February. Uh, February is kind of the uh, the doldrums month for some people. <laughs> Did you find that that was the case for you when, as a homeschooler? Oh, yeah, yeah. I absolutely despise February in every way. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Florida, so February to me was going to be – it was it's supposed to be a bright, sunny month with baseball, mm. and um, it never is that way anywhere else. So it's been a lifetime of disappointment. <laughs> Did you find um, any, uh, this is not one of the questions for this Q&A episode, but did you find any um, tips or tricks or things to do with the kids to help out with that? Yeah, put them outside and then lock the door and don't let them come back in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't, I mean, honestly, the, that you know, going outside is probably the key to getting through February, getting mm. everybody outside as much as possible. Yeah, even if it's cold outside. Yeah, even, I mean, really, we need to stop being afraid of the weather. I hate, you know, even now you'll hear people say, oh, you know, be careful out in the weather, you're going to catch a cold. And the I don't think the weather is actually responsible for um, people getting sick. I think it's germs and things like that. <laughs> so um, yeah. don't be afraid of weather, rain, snow, shot, you know, whatever, it's hot, hot weather. Yeah, one of my kids is um, not, he, if it's really cold or really hot, he gets sort of miserable so we're trying to make him deal with it and suck it up <laughs> yeah i always say you can hate one or the other but if you hate both then you're 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 becoming a, a bad person <laughs> <laughs> if you hate both yeah then you're just asking for it yeah you, you can only pick one one season of the year to be <laughs> negative <laughs> well uh we're here to to answer some listener questions um normally we would do this towards the middle of the month but uh, things that were flipped a little bit this month. So uh, we ran your interview with Megan Hoyt uh, earlier this month. And so for the end of February, this is the uh, Q&A episode. Um, but before we get into a couple of uh, questions that people sent in, I just want to take care of a little bit of business. Uh, we just launched a Mere Motherhood Facebook group. Um, so if you head over to Facebook, you can search that in the search book, in the search bar, I was going to say search book in the search bar, you can just type in <laughs> mere motherhood and that should pop up. And that's a place where we're, we can have discussions and, um, commiserate and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but also, also going to be a place where we can make announcements. So, you know, like we'll post new episodes of the podcast there. So if, if you want to get that information there, you can, if you want to see the most recent issue of your, uh, mere motherhood newsletter, you can, we'll, we'll link that there. And then we'll also link to, you know, whatever else, you know, where you're speaking and, things like that. And of course, it's a great place for people to submit questions for future podcasts as well, or for um, just for conversation for, uh, you know, among other moms. So hopefully that will be a, a valuable um, resource and, and just fun way to, to gather for everybody. We have one for the Close Reads podcast, the, the book club podcast we do. And that one's been uh, really um, entertaining and uh, lots of conversation. I think it ha probably helps that we're talking about books on there. But um, talking about parenting, I think will fit that bill pretty well as well. So yeah, I will quickly run out of uh, all my wisdom and resources. <laughs> um, but but maybe it'll be a good place for other people to join in and give give some good good you know good hints and helps. Yeah, I do think that's a good point. People can get on there, and if, so if someone asks a question about something, lots of other moms have gone through what other younger moms are going through. So. Um, there's a lot of experiences to, to be shared and, and advice to be given. 
Um, and then I mentioned the uh, Mere Motherhood newsletter. If you head over to meremotherhood.com or to the Cersei website, you can uh, sign up for that. Um, that goes out uh, approximately once a month. Um, and we'll have a brief reflection by Cindy and then some other resources like uh, you've done um, like recipes even. And, yeah, uh, I thought that would poems be fun. And stuff like that. Yeah, we actually. I wonder how many people have cooked those. We should. We should find out if you. Yeah, cooked, maybe. Maybe we could ask that. If you've cooked uh, one of those recipes that she's posted in the first two issues of that magazine, you should post them on the Facebook page so we can find out how they went. Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah, the cookie recipe is pretty good. So I, oh, I yeah. imagine people tried that. Yeah, that um, that did sound pretty good. Um. And I guess it was around Christmas time too, so perfect. Yeah, timing. Christmas cookie. I think that's what we posted anyway. Maybe not. No, yeah, I think it was. So, um, any uh, any hints on what the recipe is going to be for the February issue? Um, no. As a matter of fact, I, I put you I'm, on the spot. Yeah, I'm trying to think how far I got on that, and I, I was working on that the other day, and then um, I'm thinking, what did, what did, what was I doing? <laughs> Well, so. all right. So there'll be a niche, there'll be a recipe in it. Um, so go yeah, sign, we'll go put- sign up for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's answer some questions. Uh, this is the Q and A episode, after all. Um, we have uh, hopefully we got four questions. We're going to get to. Um, just depends on how much time each one takes. Um, the first question here is regarding math. So this questioner um, says, "I have a question about my seven-year-old daughter who does okay with math." She understands the concept of addition and subtraction and can do multi-digit operations well when she focuses. It is when she makes careless mistakes that I'm not sure what to do. How do I assess this appropriately for moving on in math? Do I move on because I know she can do it well, or do I stay until she does better about not making careless mistakes? I want to help her master a topic before moving on. Um, And this person says that they do Singapore math, but don't know what to do with her carelessness. Please help. Can you help her? Well, I think seven is really little. So, um, so any math you do with with a seven year old, coming from my perspective, it is going to be a plus on the plus side of, of learning math. It's not going to be something that one year, one bad year of math at age seven is not going to make or break the child's future career as a mathematician. So, <laughs> um, I think I think it's, there's no re- reason to push ahead and no reason to panic, uh, but at the same time. Um, if the if the child really does understand it and they're just careless, it could be that, to me, the first line of defense against carelessness is short lessons. The shorter the lesson, the less chance the child mm-hmm. has to mm-hmm. be careless. A lot of times, really young children are just overwhelmed, and carelessness is uh, is our their way of um, alerting us to the fact that that we're giving them too much. This isn't to say that you don't you know. They we're dumbing it down. I don't think that at all. We're just moving ahead very, very slowly so that they don't have a chance to be careless. We don't want to give them that opportunity. And and so so just as a quick answer, I would say drop back, do a little bit less each day, and, and require that the child do it well, and um and and just move ahead very, very steadily and slowly. Uh, but not don't don't sometimes um, you in math, I think you can move ahead when the child is kind of iffy j- j- for a short period of time because um, that the skills that they have learned and they know are just processing and it'll come out. 
as you, you move ahead. So I think it's a little bit of a dance that mom's going to have to do to kind of under, to know when to move ahead because the child really does know it and they just need a few chances to look at it in a different light that mm. sometimes that's the best thing to do mm. or, or maybe just slow down and do a lot less so that the child doesn't get into a, a bad habits of carelessness. Mm. Do you think that something, some of that carelessness just has to do with this is a seven-year-old we're talking about and attention to detail isn't necessarily always a seven-year-old's strongest point? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there are some people that say, uh, I think it's the blue dorns that say you don't even need to start math until 10. And I think the research has shown that there's really very little lost um, by starting math at 10 years old. Um, um, it's You quickly make up an understanding all those concepts that took you months and months and months to deal with in those younger years. But people like to do math and your grandparents, you know, the grandparents like to know the child's doing math. So sure. I would just not feel a lot of pressure to do it quickly. Even, even a math like Singapore, um, I started my son in like third, third or are so great in Singapore. And of course you can't just jump into the middle of it. So I had to start him at the beginning of Singapore and, and we moved ahead quite quickly at, you know, in third or fourth grade and didn't. Um, and eventually he was on schedule. It, I mean, it took a couple years because I didn't just want to cram it down, but, um, yeah. he eventually was perfect, you know, on, on, on a perfect schedule of math. Um, Okay, so when you talk about math, though, starting it, like the Blue Dorans you said, suggest starting at 10, um, I assume that's, you know, it's like formal math, right? Because little kids are naturally going to be thinking math, begin to think mathematically anyway. They're going to want to learn how to count, and they're going to do all that stuff anyway. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you talking about math, actually, using math in real life, anytime math comes up, you know, you can be aware of numbers. You can teach them to, to recognize their numbers. Um, any any natural math, I wouldn't hinder, wouldn't stop that. But yeah, I'm definitely talking about formal math. Okay, okay. So let's let's go on to the next question now. Okay. Um, this one is. Let's see. All right, here it is. In your book, you seem to say that you do not think teenaged boys should be homeschooled. Is that your opinion? Now I wrote that question <laughs> because oh. <laughs> um, somebody nobody sent me that question. That was a question I wanted to answer because there was recently on um, one of the online forums there was a big discussion. I I didn't see that I was taking a break from Facebook during that time, so I never um, went back and looked for that or tried to. But apparently, a lot of people were discussing it, and there were some moms who like said, in, oh, in relation to your book." Yes. They were saying, this is what Cindy, Cindy Rollins says, that you shouldn't homeschool your teenage boys. And so um, I want to clear that up a little bit because it, and because it ended up being quite a big conversation. I thought I would just say, you know, why I did, I did say something in my book about that. And I thought maybe I would take a minute here and just explain what I meant by that. But in my book on page 111, I say, um, during puberty, boys need strong male role models and accountability. A mother cannot provide this. And this is one reason I am less fond of homeschooling boys through high school than I used to be. At least I am not fond of mom being the sole teacher. Um, now, um, I, the, one of the reasons I put that in the book is because I have, have been on record as one of those people saying, yes, you can homeschool your boys. And, and, and I still believe that you can. I, I, I graduated uh, 
I have nine children. I graduated eight of them from our homeschool. Seven of those that graduated were boys. So, and, and I didn't have outside help like a lot of people have for various reasons. Um, I pretty much did it myself. And, um, and, and so I know that that is possible on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, looking back and seeing some of the problems that I wish that we had avoided, I see that it would have probably been better if I'd worked a little harder on getting them under other people, under on, on, under other teachers when they were um, in high school, and especially 11th and 12th grades. But like I've said before, generally those decisions need to be made in ninth grade because of the way our world um, works. So um, often when you get to 11th and 12th grade, it's too late to make a change. Generally, that's what happened to me. So you're kind of stuck if you haven't made the decision in ninth grade. But no, I so so as much as I, I know that a mom can homeschool her sons if she has to and, and God can provide for that, I get a lot of phone calls. And, and even this month, I've been on the phone several times with moms of teenage sons. And um, there just comes a time when if you if you don't want to be in conflict with that child all the time, that it's just helpful for you to resume the role of mother and back away from the role uh, as the uh, what you're going to require for them, for instance, to graduate from high school. Because a lot of sons will challenge that. Um, they want to graduate from high school, but they also want to 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 show um, that they're master of their own fate, you could say. And so often with the mom, you're in you put you get yourself backed into a corner. You know, you said he has to do this to graduate. Well, he's not going to do it now. What do you do? And and rather than get in those situations, it, it would be a lot better at that point um, to get your son under some other authorities and especially male authorities, uh, a male male. And, and let, let he, let's even throw out the word authority. Let's just say role models or, or mentors or someone who who can work with the boy in a way that's um, more in that he won't feel like he has to challenge that person. Um, I, I'm not trying to put, I feel I part of me wants to pull the apostle Paul card and say, well, you know, I did, I did graduate all these kids from my homeschool. So, um, you know, maybe I have, you know, a big picture that, that some other people might not have. And I'm, I'm not trying to be like that, but at the same time, um, a lot of young moms don't see what they're going to be up against with those boys because they're wonderful boys and they're good boys. And, and the women that I'm talking with on the phone are not talking to me about bad boys. Um, they're just, they're just having conflicts with, with, um, with boys who are growing up and, and becoming men. Hmm. So is that where you see the benefit of things like, um, sports and stuff because i know your kids all played sports or I, I don't know if all of them did but lots of baseball in your family yeah um, every yeah they all played <clears throat> baseball and and i know i'm a big fan of that any anything like that i think that saved our family and, and also our family had a lot of boys so they had each other to knock their head mm. against you know and wrestle <laughs> and, and 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 argue and, and do that sort of thing so yeah. i think that really helped a lot um but but a lot of families don't have that you don't have five or six boys in your home um, so you so have probably, you know, probably you, most is the word. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a lot of times a boy will be in a home with a lot of sisters and that brings its own special 
you know, problems too. Um, a, a boy in a family of girls is going to be bossed around a lot. Girls can be very bossy and prissy and they don't like that. Ooh, he did this. Ooh, he did that. And, um, and, and that isn't, you know, always that healthy either to, for him to always be around um, girls who are bossing him around. And I've seen that a lot. I've seen families where the daughters are a little, you know, just, just little girlish and self-righteous and the boy is gross <laughs> and, and it's a constant thing in the family. So, uh, you know, I was thinking about this the other day because, um, I'm, there's a school, we're having a Charlotte Mason tutorial starting here in, in Chattanooga. And I really, really excited about that tutorial on, on the one hand, on the other hand, I'm thinking, you know, those early years, the, the years one, one through sixth grade are such great years for mom with their kids. There's nobody who really can improve on what a mom does in the home. No school can really do as well as a home and a family in that, those early years, um, say up through sixth or seventh grade. Um, I, I wish that when we started our schools that we would just say, hey, Moms are doing great with those early years. Let let's start our schools at, at you know seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, and um, stop wasting some of our energy and time on those early grades where, um, where where we already have a solution for those grades. But that is a personal opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that goes into that one, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, there that, is. That, I, I know pre preparation for a school, you know, is is a big deal. I know. So. Um... So, so basically, if you think that the safest way to homeschool teenage boys, and I guess I'm kind of trying to summarize here, is if you're going to do it, you need to find some other authority figures to be involved in their, their either in their directly in their schooling through like co-ops or whatever, or through or as authority figures and role models through things like sports or Boy Scouts or whatever. Is that kind of yeah? That's kind I of the summary. So yeah, if, that is the summary. And and then your husband should be heavily involved in the requirements, like. Okay, this is what has to be done to graduate. So let's do that. I mean, I've known moms that get in really bad situations with um, wanting to graduate a child and not being able to because they just haven't done the work. Mm. Yeah. Okay, should we move on from that one? Yeah, let's move on. Okay. Uh, here's a question about narration. So this person says, what is the difference between a narration and a book report? They sound identical to me, but I get the impression that classical educators are pro-narration and anti-book report. So narration versus book report yeah now i'm thinking did we answer this um definitely that is true um, um classical educators charlotte mason educators are pro narration and and book reports are in, in the charlotte mason world because a book report is is you bringing to the book what you got out of it a lot of times whereas a narration is the student processing what the author was saying and and having the student retell what was in the what was in the book it's not about the student's opinion of the book and that's where um, those differ a little bit and that's why um, um, we're not um, we're, we're preparing the child to interact with these big ideas by with the author of the book uh, we're not teaching the child that it has anything to do with what they think about the book does that make any sense yeah no that makes sense so when do you think uh, it should move towards them presenting what they think? Like when should it start to go a little bit more towards uh, the analysis part as opposed to just the narration part? Well, I mean, any, I mean, you're always going to have some analysis when you're, when you're talking in the family about books or you're talking in the classroom about books. Yeah, that's a good point. I, 
I think that that's, that's more organic and that's not, um, that's not the same thing as processing, um, what the author has said. And, and I'm really hesitant about, I'm a little, um, I'm not sure how much of that we really have to do. I'm really not sure how much we need to dig into the, the idea. What did, what was the author trying to say? What, what, mm-hmm. what, what's going on here? How, what, because when we start doing that, we often go far, far afield of, of what the author really was trying to do, or we, we imp- imply motives that aren't there and we start making it, the book into something that it's not. And I know a lot of authors don't like that. They, uh, C.S. Lewis talked a lot about, you know, don't, don't make an allegory where there isn't one. Um, don't, um, don't overstretch the ideas that I take the ideas and let them do their work in you, but don't impose um, on those ideas. A Flannery O'Connor, you know, she was a very big one on that. Um, she, you know, she, she basically said, you know, it's not about the person reading the book, what I was saying. The, whereas in modern times, we like to say, well, each person comes to the book and each person brings something and the book changes according to the person who's reading it. And, um, that's, I don't, I don't, I, I feel like, um, we can get a lot out of a book without overanalyzing it or over, um, you know, sometimes there's some obvious themes that, you know, are fun to talk about. And, and, and I, and like I said, in an organic fashion, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But when we teach a child to approach literature like that as a regular course, I think, um, it, it can get a little tricky. Um, I, I just recently, I don't know if you saw that there was a poetess, um, a lady who, and I don't have her name right now, but her, her she, she took the, one of the Texas, I think it was the TAS tests yeah, that they yeah, give. Yeah. She, so she goes to answer the questions about her own poetry and she gets them wrong on the test. <laughs> um, because the, the authors of the test have implied all these things that, that she had never thought, never even occurred to her. She said when she was writing the poem. And in fact, they picked, she said they picked her most angsty poem that she wrote in her early 20s when she was at her worst, um, a, a poem she wouldn't impose on anybody. <laughs> and, and, and we're giving this, you know, suicidal thing to young kids mm. to analyze. And, and she was appalled by that. Mm. And I think that we forget that authors are um, Humans? not always, yeah, that they're not always trying to... Um, you know, what do they say? Sometimes a, a rose is just a rose or some whatever the thing yeah. is. Sometimes. Yes. So, uh, sometimes authors aren't trying to do as much as just tell a really good story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are, I mean, Ulysses, I know if you take something like um, um, that book, um, what's his, uh, which what, you shouldn't Shane's bother. Joyce. Yeah. Yeah. If he, <laughs> he purposely did that, but in a way he was making fun of us by doing that. He, he was filling it with all this deep undercurrent, um, uh, as a, almost as a puzzle. And, and there are books that are puzzles. And, and, and if you have fun, do, you know, you can have fun doing that. Um, but I just, I would just say, I would rather see a child narrate than, than do, um, then overanalyze a book and let the analyst analyzation come as, um, as just part of the natural, the natural, you know, look at life. Yeah. I mean, I think it's David Hicks that says if you, it's the mark of a bad teacher to answer a question that hasn't been asked yet. 
And I think yeah. so many times we, we make our students in, or we try to make our students into little academics, even at very young ages. And so that we're teaching them to look at literature in a way that really only an academic would, because they've got specific questions that they're trying to answer, but we don't have children who are asking these questions yet. And so we need to help them, you know, enter the world of a story so that they then have their own questions that they can pursue. And when they have, yeah, those, when they yeah. have the questions they want to pursue, then that's when they're going to really learn the story. And then when they find that stuff accidentally, you know, or, you know, stumble upon it because of where their own brain processes are taking them, it's going to be so much more meaningful than if I just said, oh, you know, here's what I, I pulled out of this book and I want you to, I want to slap it, you know, against you and you, you're supposed to keep it somehow. I don't think that's how literature works. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great things about narration though, is that when they're narrating as they're thinking about it and processing it that's when the questions really are going to come up. That's when they're going to begin to have those questions and the questions, the the seeds are going to be planted and they're going to start, you know, producing fruit via narration because of that, because of that activity. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. So they're, they're already using their brain on that. So it's naturally going to lead to some, um, some questions along the way. Well, wait, 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 what, what does that, what does that mean? And, And we might not even know it. Like how many times have we had something with one of our kids, especially when they're young, say you're reading the line, the witch in the wardrobe or some classic children's book and you're reading it. And then later on you're talking about it and they ask some question or something comes up months or weeks later that you'd never heard them talk about before, but they, they, they had been puzzling on it just whenever. And they make some kind of insightful comment or ask some insightful question that would never have happened if you had tried to force that upon them. But literature works such that it happened on its own. I think that seems to happen all the time. Yeah, and I see that when I when kids orally narrate, like if the like take a twelve year old especially someone in that age range, and they they're orally narrating. Sometimes the insights that just pop out of their mouth accidentally as they're repeating what's happening in the story, are, are are I mean it happens so much that I'm constantly I'm like oh I just thought you were just this kid that just you know didn't have a thought in their head and and then suddenly because they are are thinking like that as they read they begin they begin to actually sound like they're very intelligent insightful people <laughs> yeah, who knew yeah it's very hidden. <laughs> yeah i guess it does sometimes that seems like that age is a time when some of that stuff does you know seem to change it's like when you have um you take it way back to the early years i have a friend who who once told me that when you have a little baby like before they start talking and stuff they seem so smart because they're yeah. interacting with you and all that kind of stuff. And then they start trying to talk and then they just seem dumb. And, and it's That's like, real, yeah, it's yeah. Like you just, it, and then it feels like then for a while, it feels like they're not smart enough until they, until they start doing things like as parents, we're so constantly worried about how smart are they? How dumb are they? What's the, um, you know, when are they showing it? And are they showing it the right way and all that kind of stuff? And we're kind of yeah, like they're constantly they're judging yeah. them for that. Now I know sometimes there is like, concerns about a child's intelligence and like there's things you want to be aware of but i'm not saying that's not the case but for the most part we're so preoccupied with just how smart are our kids and like the book report and things like that and analysis is a great way for them to prove they're smart um, or at least to make you feel like their your kids are smart oh yeah definitely definitely and and, and it kind of puffs the child up because they think it's yeah, about them you that's know true. it's all about them and it's yeah. not about them it's not about but, you know, you're right. You said this before. Your little kids, you're always 
like a three or four year old, they're always saying insightful things. And then there's this long dull period where, <laughs> you know, suddenly there's nothing insightful, maybe between, you know, seven and uh, 12. And then suddenly at 12 or 13, they start acting like, oh, they, ha they do have a thought in their head. So. So, so much to look forward to. Yeah. Um, okay. Last question. Uh, this is an interesting one. What do you think a Charlotte Mason Sunday school class would look like? Yeah, I was really excited when I saw this question because I, I teach Sunday school and um, I think, yeah, I, and I think about it all the time because, um, how, what do you do to, because you can go in there with this long lesson and you can teach and teach and teach and teach and then just kind of lose everybody. And and I think the church, it's a big, this is a huge question. And, and it's one, as we see people grow up in the church and I've, I've thought before that our, they'll, they'll have all these statistics, how many people leave the church at a certain age. And I honestly think sometimes we've bored them to death. We've, we've just bored the life out of our kids. And so um, they don't want, you know, Sunday school after years and years and years of the same thing. And after years of children's church and years of vacation Bible school, um, we've, we've really just dumbed everything down to the point that um, that children are bored. And, and I feel badly for them. But the, what, what I like to do and is I, I like to look at Sunday school as, as a morning time. And I wish the one thing I don't do that I wish that I could add into it would be to read uh, aloud a literature book in Sunday school after the lesson, after the short Bible lesson. Um, and that would be, you know, like something like one of the Patricia M. St. John books. We're reading Treasures of the Snow right now oh, yeah. at, at our schoolhouse. And I would just love to read that to the kids in Sunday school and have them be excited to come back next week because, um, you know, that we're, we're not only are we reading the Bible, but we're also reading uh, a, a narrative literary work also. Um, I think that would go perfectly fine with our theology. I think, I think it would just be, if, you know, if we're careful what books we picked. But um, I, I like to think of Sunday school as a liturgy, just like the service. And so, um, and once again, if, if you look at it as little 10 minute slots, um, you're going to go in, you're going to, you're going to obviously pray and talk to your class. And then you're going to ask them, um, to narrate essentially what happened last week in the class. And then, um, at, from there, you're going to start, you know, moving slowly towards, um, maybe you can sing, I think you should sing, review your Bible verse, and then move into the, um, the, the Bible lesson. Um, the, the, the Bible story. And from there, um, you can do, you know, kind of like a Lost Tools writing um, lesson two, which is very similar concept um, to, to the artifact to what, you know, how, how does this, how does this work in our lives? Or how do we apply this? Or what can we do? You know, can we um, some more narrating of the lesson? And then, um, and then turn it around, maybe, maybe a benediction and, and, and at, before the benediction, maybe a, a, a 10 minute time of reading aloud. Um, I would love to see that happen. Um, people, there's a real dearth of, uh, Sunday school materials that are, that are, um, that are challenging and interesting to, to a child. Um, mm -hmm. often we take, I mean, it's much, it would be, it's really almost a hundred percent better to read directly from the Bible than, than to, um, have a lot of 
Bible stories that are kind of have all the life sucked out of them. Um, and now some Bible story books aren't like that. Some really are done quite well. But um, but anyway, I would just look at Sunday school like like a big morning time or really a short mm. morning time because you only mm. have a lot of times you only have an hour for Sunday school or less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, so we kind of do that now in our Sunday school class. At least um, that's sort of my plan when I go in there. I I look at it as you know ten minutes, ten minutes, ten minutes, and um, um, it it seems like it goes well that way. Have you had any response from parents or anything like they're like this isn't basically not the the way they expected Sunday school to be? I've had a lot of positive feedback about Sunday school. Um so um yeah, I would say yeah, uh, people I I've had people say, "Oh, you know, and the kids seem to to be engaged and they don't get bored." And um so I've been happy with that. Hmm. Um this year we switched curriculum so I had this it was the curriculum we're using now is a little more difficult to do that with but it's a very uh it's going through believe it or not this curriculum is going through Exodus and Leviticus and going and talking about the temple and some of these um very very specific things. So it's a little less of a narrative hmm. um but um it's still I think it's challenged the kids. I think the yeah. kids have been happy that they're getting something <clears throat> solid and not just being, you know, told cute little stories. Yeah. Yeah. Something's actually kind of, they're kind of being challenged a little bit. Yeah. I mean, this Sunday they asked some excellent questions and you know, when a kid's asking good questions that things are going well, hmm. um, I couldn't answer the questions and I'm, I've sent them on to a theologian in the church, but yeah. <laughs> they, they were really deep questions about, um, the sacrifices that were brought to the tabernacle and the mm. wilderness and mm. wow and they're these are third they were second graders second and third graders oh wow wow so the power of morning time yeah yeah so <laughs> all right well um that's all four questions thank you to everyone who sent them in and of course thank you to everyone who's been listening uh please make sure to head over to itunes or stitcher wherever you get podcasts and hit that subscribe button um, that helps us out a lot. And please help us spread the word. Tell a friend, um, if you would. Um, that helps us as well as we try to produce more content. Um, we have a few ideas for some additional content um, uh, on the network in general on this show. And we'll see what happens. Um, and uh, if we have, you know, if there's interest there, we'll definitely try to keep bringing you um, great content. So, Cindy, any final thoughts? Uh, no, um, I guess I'm just going to head over to Facebook and take a look at the page over there because um, I haven't been there yet. Yeah. I just I just found out about it, and um, uh, that should be fun. Yeah, yeah. Hope hope everybody enjoys that. Um, even if there's a small group, I'm guessing there's going to be some pretty good conversation there. And again, it's a great place to ask questions. If you want to put questions there for the March Q&A episode, you can do that. Or of course, you can email Cindy or I. And Cindy, your email is Cindy at ordo-amoris.com, right? That's correct. And I am David at CerseInstitute.com if you feel the need to send them to me as well. Um, that was maybe a little more negative than I meant it to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, usually they go to you. It's not necessary to send them to me. But if people want to make sure they get to one of us, then you can tag me on that email as well. He's um, very good at ma- sending me the, the emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Try to forward them on. Um, okay. Well, for Cindy Rollins and all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Curran saying farewell on the Mason Jar here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>